Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A judge orders top Biden officials to produce records after documents revealed government officials pressured social media companies to censor users. Another Trump-endorsed candidate wins their primary. Jeff Deal beat Chris Doty in Massachusetts' GOP gubernatorial primary. Some blame former President Trump for learning loss during pandemic school closures. Meanwhile, a Democrat ad from 2020 is resurfacing that criticizes Trump for wanting to reopen schools. With a special master allowed to review documents in the Trump probe, how can Americans make sure the appointee will be unbiased? And what does the judge's ruling reveal? We bring you some answers from a judicial expert. A judge is ordering top Biden officials to hand over their records related to big tech censorship. Some, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and the White House press secretary, have resisted. And today's Jessica Beatty has more on the lawsuit. A Trump-appointed judge Tuesday ordered the government to quickly produce documents after it was sued by the attorneys general of Louisiana and Missouri in conjunction with the New Civil Liberties Alliance, or NCLA. The NCLA is representing plaintiffs who were censored on social media for disagreeing with the White House's COVID-19 policy. Two of the plaintiffs are world-renowned epidemiologists. The initial tranche of discovery was released a week ago. It revealed that more than 50 government officials applied pressure to social media companies to censor users. But some officials refused to answer questions, including Dr. Fauci and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. The government claimed they should not have to answer all questions or provide records, saying the documents are not relevant to plaintiffs' claims. But the judge Tuesday said they need to comply. He said Dr. Fauci's communications would be relevant to plaintiffs' allegations of suppression of speech related to the COVID-19 lab leak theory and efficiency of masks and COVID-19 lockdowns. The judge said Jean-Pierre's communications as White House press secretary, along with her predecessor's communications, would be relevant to all examples. That includes suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story ahead of the 2020 election. As for Fauci, he also has to answer questions regarding his role as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. NCLA lawyer Janine Yunus, who's representing some of the plaintiffs, said they know from the previous round of discovery that censorship efforts came from the very top. In her words, Americans deserve to know Anthony Fauci's participation in this enterprise, especially since he's publicly demanded that specific individuals, including two of our clients, Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Koldorf, be censored on social media. Dr. Fauci and Jean-Pierre have 21 days to answer questions and hand over records. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Massachusetts primary election results are out, and another Trump-endorsed candidate takes the win. Jeff Deal beat Chris Doty to get the GOP nomination for governor. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has yesterday's primary results. Former state representative Jeff Deal tallied just over 55% of the vote to secure his win. Deal served as co-chair for Trump's presidential campaign in Massachusetts in 2016. He will face the Democratic nominee, Attorney General Maura Healey, in November. Deal says he believes there is an opening to defeat Healey due to her progressive policies. Healey has said that pregnancy support centers are dangerous and called for more drag queen events at schools. She easily won her primary with 85% of the vote. Her only competitor stopped campaigning in June. 
Healy will have to overcome the so-called curse of the Attorney General to win the general election. Since 1958, six former Massachusetts Attorneys General have sought the governor's office and all have failed. In Tuesday's U.S. House primary, all candidates ran unopposed except for the 8th and 9th districts on the GOP side. Robert Burke beat Hamilton Soros Rodriguez in District 8. Burke will face Democrat incumbent Stephen Lynch. In District 9, the race has not yet been called, but Jesse Brown is leading with over 50% of the vote over Dan Sullivan. The winner will face Democrat incumbent Representative Bill Keating in November. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Next, we bring you an update on the FBI's raid of former President Trump's home. The Washington Post cites anonymous sources reporting the Bureau seized materials on a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities. Former DNI James Clapper says if it's true, it's appalling that these documents have been at Mar-a-Lago for 18 months. On the other hand, Fox's Laura Ingram accuses the Post reporters of going after Trump without much evidence. The Post only allows unnamed sources in tightly defined circumstances. Now that the judge has allowed for a special master to review the documents, we hear some analysis from an expert on judicial matters. He's the founder and president of the Article 3 Project. Joining us now is Mike Davis, the former chief counsel for nominations to Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley. Great to have you on, Mike. Thank you for having me. And as you know, a judge has appointed an independent special master to review the records seized by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago. What does this mean, and what does the judge's order reveal? I think what Judge Cannon is revealing here is that she does not have confidence in the Biden Justice Department or Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt. There are clear problems with this investigation. And she talked about this. She said, quote, the swirling allegations of bias and media leaks. What we've seen with this investigation is that they are constantly leaking and lying from the investigation. First of all, the president had the absolute constitutional power to declassify anything he wanted before he left the White House, and President Trump did that. He had the absolute statutory power to, to keep and maintain these records in the office of former president in Mar-a-Lago. It is legally impossible for President Trump to have violated the Espionage Act or any of these government record statutes. So therefore, it's legally impossible for him to have obstructed investigations into these non-crimes. And I think Judge Cannon in the Southern District of Florida is seeing the impropriety, the, the illegal conduct coming out of the Biden, uh, Biden Justice Department. They're illegally leaking out things from the grand jury, which is clearly illegal. They're leaking out from this affidavit that they're hiding from the American people as too sensitive. They leaked out that, that Merrick Garland did not personally approve this raid. That was a lie. They leaked out that Trump had America's nuclear documents. That was a lie. They leaked out that President Biden and the Biden White House was not involved with this raid. That was a lie. President Biden had to waive President Trump's claim of executive privilege, which paved the way for this unprecedented, unnecessary, and unlawful home raid of a former president. So I think a special master, what a special master will do is bring uh, bring an, another set of eyes on this. And if the Biden Justice Department has nothing to hide, they should have no problem with the special master checking their homework. Yes, for example, you mentioned the special master. What, what are the disadvantages of having one? Is there anything to hide? And why would the DOJ worry about this? Well, there wouldn't be a disadvantage. They're trying to claim that a special master will slow down this investigation because the special master will have to get security clearances. Well, re remember, the Biden administration waited 18 months to go get these records. If these records were so damning, why did they wait 18 months to go get them? Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland leaked out to Newsweek when this when this raid was uh, politically blowing back in his face. 
He leaked out to Newsweek that he deliberated for weeks on this uh, before he ordered this unnecessary, unlawful, unprecedented home raid of a former president. Well, if he had weeks to deliberate, why would he not go get an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department to figure out whether this home raid is even lawful? It's not. Maybe he was worried he would not have gotten the right answer from OLC. But and then they waited three weeks after they went to this clearly biased judge, Bruce Reinhardt, who just recused from President Trump's civil lawsuit on June 22nd. Somehow his judicial bias magically disappeared when he authorized this home raid. But they had all this time, 18 months, several weeks, three days after the home raid to execute it. But now they don't have any time. They have to hurry up and, and a special master was, will slow them down too much. It doesn't make sense. Let's look at this from the public's viewpoint. What do Americans need to be on the lookout for to make sure that the special master is not biased? Well, the both sides will propose a special master. The Biden Justice Department's going to, uh, uh, they're going to propose some uniparty lawyer in D.C. who's going to, you know, D.C.'s 95% Democrat. The 5% of the Republicans are Trump deranged rhinos. So, of course, they're going to want someone from that, from that, uh, from that pool of potential uh, special masters. I would say this, I think what people need to step back and realize what this case is all about. This has nothing to do with classified documents. This has to do with President Trump's declassified personal copy of his crossfire hurricane records. He declassified them on January 19th, the day before he left office. Biden, the Biden administration dragged their feet and did not publicly release these documents. But President Trump has these documents and they are damning on Russian collusion. They are damning for Obama. Biden, Hillary, Susan Rice, Brennan, Clapper, the FBI, the intel community. That's why That's why the Biden administration, that's why President Biden and his administration had to do this unprecedented, unnecessary, and unlawful home raid because they had to get back these documents. Everything else is political noise. Very interesting analysis. Mike Davis, former chief counsel for nominations for Senator Grassley, pleasure having you with us today. Thank you. On to education. Who's to blame for the reported learning loss during pandemic lockdowns? Accusations are flying in all directions after the nation's report card indicated students are falling behind. The Wall Street Journal published an op-ed last week blaming the president of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, for apparent learning loss among children. That came after the National Center for Education Statistics found that nine-year-olds' reading and math skills dropped to the level it was two decades ago. Weingarten then responded by sending a letter to the Journal blaming former President Trump for school closures and the learning loss that resulted in it. While former President Donald Trump and his education secretary, Ms. DeVos, ranted and raved, their successors put the safety measures in place to get reopening done. The White House is taking a similar stance. The press secretary said the Biden administration is to thank for schools reopening because the American Rescue Plan allocated over $120 billion towards reopening K-12 schools. Every Republican Congress voted against that money. That is the reality. We had to do this on our own. Schools are open now, but much of that money still hasn't been spent. The press secretary says they'll try to use the money to help students who fell the furthest behind. Meanwhile, Republican lawmakers say Trump advocated for reopening schools sooner and say it was Democrats who pushed back. If governors do not want to open the public schools, the money should go to parents so they can send their children to the school of their choice. So we say if a school doesn't want to open or if a governor doesn't want to open, maybe for political reason or maybe not. They point to a video published by the Democratic National Committee in 2020 criticizing Trump for wanting to reopen schools. Desperate to reopen schools because he thinks it will save his reelection. 
According to the White House, around half of all schools were open when President Biden took office. Millions of masks used with sleep apnea machines are under recall for safety concerns. Philips Respironics recalled more than 17 million masks used with their CPAP and BiPAP machines. The Food and Drug Administration says the issue is with magnets that hold the mask components in place. They can affect the function of metal implants like brain stents, aneurysm clips, and pacemakers. At least 14 serious injuries have been reported. The recalled mask types are DreamWisp, DreamWare, AmaraView, WISP, and WISP Youth. The FDA says people can continue to use the products if they and people around them don't have any metal implants. In other news, Trump ally Steve Bannon says he expects to be charged by New York soon in a state criminal case. An anonymous source cited by AP says Bannon plans to turn himself in on Thursday. In a statement, Bannon calls the alleged charges phony. He says the district attorney is timing the case 60 days before the midterm election because his radio show is popular among Trump supporters. Bannon pointed to his 2020 arrest a few months before the presidential election and said, quote, it didn't work then, it certainly won't work now. He called the case, quote, nothing more than a partisan political weaponization of the criminal justice system. The earlier case against Bannon accused him of pocketing border wall donations. Trump pardoned him on his last day in office. Two others involved in the case pleaded guilty in April. A president can only pardon federal crimes, not state offenses like the New York case Bannon is expecting, but that doesn't mean state-level prosecutors have total freedom to try Bannon on the same charges. A North Carolina senator avoided nearly $90,000 in stock losses at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. A 2020 search warrant affidavit revealed Senator Richard Burr sold off $87,000 in stocks. Investigators said in the warrant that because of his position in Congress, the North Carolina Republican knew about the threat of COVID-19 in February, before public concern of severe economic impacts from the pandemic escalated. The Justice Department launched an insider trading investigation into Burr, which eventually concluded without criminal charges. And coming up, California residents are planning for blackouts and saving energy. The state's grid operator briefly raised their warning to the highest level. Stay tuned for more after this short break. The Fairview Fire is rapidly spreading across several Southern California communities. 4,500 acres have burned, with only 5% of the fire contained. Evacuation orders remain in place and extend to communities further east. The blaze began on Monday afternoon near the city of Hemet. It moved further east after a 180-degree turn of the wind that puzzled officials. Two fatalities have been reported as people attempted to flee the fire. Three individuals are being treated for injuries. Seven structures were damaged or destroyed by the fire as of Monday night. Evacuation orders are in place. Officials said residents should expect to remain out of their homes for at least four to five days. Classes were canceled Tuesday, and schools in the Hemet Unified School District will remain closed today. The cause of the fire is still being investigated, but electrical company Southern California Edison said that circuit activity occurred around the time the fire began. 
From fires to hurricanes, folks in Mexico and Southern California are keeping an eye on K. Hurricane K is a Category 2 hurricane right now, and it's expected to bring strong winds and heavy rain across the Baja California Peninsula over the next few days. The National Hurricane Center says it could make landfall late Thursday. The area could get between 6 and 10 inches of rain, with some parts getting about 15 inches. Parts of Southern California will likely see rain from the storm this weekend. Californians are struggling to escape a scorching heat wave. The state's power grid operator raised an emergency alert to its highest level briefly on Tuesday, pressuring residents to cut usage or face electricity blackouts. Many Californians flocked to the coast to cool off on Tuesday as the state faced potential power blackouts amid a sweltering heat wave. Oh, it's hot out here. Yeah, it's uh, definitely not usually hot. A lot of people using the air conditioner, like, and using light, fans, you know, everything just to try to keep, like, you know, cool. The heat wave has been going on for about a week, pushing parts of California to record temperatures. In Death Valley, the mercury hit 127 degrees Fahrenheit, or 53 Celsius, on September the 1st. That's believed to be the hottest September day to ever have been recorded on Earth. And while the Santa Monica ocean breeze kept these beachgoers cool, state authorities were pleading with residents and businesses to throttle their power use during peak hours for a seventh straight day. The warning, known as a flex alert, came from California's independent service operator, which asked locals to be ready for potential rotating power outages. It said electricity demand had hit a new historic all-time high for the grid and later on Tuesday briefly raised the power grid's emergency alert to its highest. But for many, air conditioning is hard to give up. I was burning in the bus yesterday, but as soon as I got off, I just jumped in the A.C. in the car. <laughs> Low-key, we just bought like two A.C.s for the house because this heat is so bad and it's really not giving. In a video released Tuesday, Governor Gavin Newsom joined the chorus in urging Californians to do a little bit more to keep the energy supplies going. He also blamed years of drought for the state's reduced hydroelectric power generation capability. Weather experts are closely watching the path of Hurricane Kay, with concerns that the flow around the storm could lead to extreme heat along the coast around San Diego. An extreme weather heat warning remains in place until late Thursday. Turning now to a more intangible threat, the Los Angeles Unified School District has been targeted by an external cyber attack. A district statement says a ransomware attack occurred during the long holiday weekend and is likely criminal in nature. The district was able to open its schools as usual Tuesday morning and does not expect problems with instruction or such services as transportation and food. The district says the investigation and response involved the White House, the U.S. Department of Education, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security. Physician-assisted suicide is legal in several states, including California, but now a federal court in the state has ruled that doctors who object to assisted suicide cannot be forced to take part in it. At issue is a legal requirement that a physician must document a patient's request for life-ending drugs. That's a necessary step in the life-ending procedure. The request must be given to two doctors. However, even if a doctor objects to a patient's request, it still counts as a step in the procedure, which effectively means the doctor has taken part. The judge's ruling says the state cannot compel doctors to document those requests. He ruled that the state law likely violates the First Amendment rights of doctors. 
The decision came in response to a federal lawsuit by a group of Christian doctors. The complaint says that over 90% of Christian doctors would rather stop practicing than be forced to participate in assisted suicide. Over to Boston, where things are looking up for commuters, repair on the subway's Orange Line is 60% done three weeks into the shutdown. Here's the general manager of Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority at a press conference Tuesday. Now we're on day 18 of the 30-day shutdown, and work is continuing to progress as planned. Uh, As you can see here, the site is fully mobilized, as are multiple sites across the system. We're at close to just under 60% of the planned work has been completed. And again, we remain uh, cautiously confident about getting this work done and getting all this work done on time. Well, so far, I would say the progress is pretty much according to plan. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of work left to be done between now and the 19th of September. But I do believe that the progress to date um, is pretty consistent with expectations. That's the governor of Massachusetts. He says crews are replacing 6,000 feet of track along the stretch. The city is now seeking alternative shuttle services to ease the rush hour traffic. Last week, the Federal Transit Administration released an inspection report on the Massachusetts system. It noted that the agency has focused on long-term projects while neglecting maintenance over the years. It also included 53 special directives for things like worker shortages and safety management. A U.S. judge says mining company Rio Tinto must face an investor lawsuit. It accuses the mining giant of concealing delays and huge cost overruns at a Mongolian copper and gold mine. The mine is owned by Turquoise Hill Resources, and Rio Tinto has a majority stake. The decision allows for a class-action lawsuit on behalf of Turquoise shareholders. Pentwater Capital Management is Turquoise's largest minority shareholder. The firm accused Rio Tinto and Turquoise of falsely assuring that the $5.3 billion mine was on plan and on budget, even as it was falling up to two and a half years behind schedule and coming in as much as $1.9 billion over budget. Rio Tinto says Pentwater's claims are unfounded and says it consistently complied with its obligations. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, an update on the earthquake in China's Sichuan province. The death toll has jumped to over 70, but the COVID-19 lockdown is still in place and residents are not allowed to leave their buildings. In a South Korean city, two residents stranded by a typhoon are dramatically rescued. They were trapped in a flooded garage for more than 12 hours. Find out more right here on NTD News. Good to have you back with us. The death toll in this week's earthquake in western China has jumped to 74, with another 26 people still missing. Over 250 have been injured. Residents are frustrated with uncompromising COVID lockdowns that prevented residents from leaving their buildings during the earthquake. The death toll is rising, and aftershocks continue in Sichuan. After a magnitude 6.6 earthquake hit the Chinese province on Monday, Over a million residents in surrounding areas are reported to have felt moderate tremors. Some homes and buildings are destroyed or severely damaged. This dashcam video shows the moment the quake struck in Luding, a county near the quake's epicenter. 
Tall trees and structures are swaying and shaking. At one point, the facade of one building just crumbles. Authorities locked down 21 million residents in the Citron capital of Chengdu because of rising cases of COVID-19. This social media video underscores the heightened tension among residents who are venting their frustration as they remain in lockdown after the quake. On social media, a man pleads, Do you understand the situation we are dealing with in Sichuan right now? Because of COVID, we can't go out. But because of the earthquake, we can't stay inside. Who can tell us where is the safest for us? The region has also endured drought and the worst heat wave on record. And now, the aftermath of a deadly earthquake. It's misery upon misery in this afflicted Chinese province. Turning to the influence competition between the U.S. and China in the Pacific, the U.S. has moved high-tech missiles to South Korea and met with diplomats from Japan and the Philippines. Meanwhile, the Solomon Islands seems to be having a change of heart about banning foreign ships. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the details with China in focus. Next, we shift to South Korea. That's where a high-tech U.S. missile defense system has been moved into a military base. Vehicles carrying the equipment enter the Songjo base Sunday night. The anti-missile system is known as THAAD. Its installation was one of President Yoon Suk-yul's campaign promises and part of his pledge to take a tougher stance on North Korea. South Korea installed part of the THAAD in 2017, looking to counter nuclear and missile threats from North Korea. But the move drew anger from China, which claimed the system could threaten its own security. Because of it, former South Korean President Moon Jae-in promised not to deploy any additional THAAD systems. But Yoon, the current president, has vowed stronger cooperation with Washington, including acquiring more THAAD equipment to respond to North Korea's growing nuclear threat. The U.S. is boosting its maritime security ties with more countries in the Indo-Pacific region. On Tuesday, a meeting was held in Tokyo by diplomats and defense officers from the three countries. No one nation should be able to dominate Indo-Pacific waters through coercion and outright intimidation. Might does not make right, and we do not shy away from calling out Beijing's provocative actions. The U.S. called out recent actions from Beijing, like the militarization of maritime spaces, harassment of foreign fishermen and other civilian vessels, and the depletion of maritime resources. China has been swiftly strengthening its military might. It clocks in as spending the second most on military of any nation in the world, second only to the U.S. The Solomon Islands says it plans to lift a ban on foreign Navy ships entering its ports soon though Australia and New Zealand have already been named as exemptions. Last week, the Solomon Islands suspended port visits by four Navy ships. That's after it didn't answer a U.S. Coast Guard vessel's request to refuel. The move raised alarms about the island's growing ties to Beijing. The island nation has been a point of contention between the U.S., China and Australia. It has deep ports that are ideal for military bases and used to serve as a strategic headquarters for Japan and the UK when they controlled the Pacific. Back in World War II, the Solomon Islands was also a critical battlefield between the Allies and Japan. The Solomon Islands has been growing closer to Beijing. In 2019, it switched its diplomatic allegiance from Taiwan to Beijing. And this April, it signed a security deal with the Chinese regime. 
The West has raised concerns that the deal could lead to a Chinese military base on the island, located just over a thousand miles off Australia's shores. At a press conference, Australia's foreign minister was asked if she's disappointed that the U.S. is not yet exempt from the Solomon Islands ban. Solomon Islands is making a, has indicated publicly they're making a, a decision on a case-by-case basis. Um, they are a sovereign nation, and and there, you know, that's a that's a matter for them. What I, what I would say is that you know the U.S. has a long history of presence in the Pacific, going back to World War II. During World War II, American soldiers fought and died to free the Solomon Islands from Japan. Known as the Battle of Guadalcanal, it was one of the most critical military campaigns of the war. Wong said the U.S. Ambassador to Australia, Carolyn Kennedy, visited the Solomon Islands to commemorate the battle. She added that the U.S. is part of the history of the region, as well as a part of the present and the future of the region. Two South Koreans were rescued in a dramatic operation. They were trapped in a submerged underground parking garage for more than 12 hours in a city battered by a powerful typhoon. The rescue happened in the southern city of Pohang. The two people were rescued from the underground parking lot of an apartment complex. That's where eight people went missing trying to save their cars. Both were found alive near the garage entrance. The man was clinging to pipes while a woman in her 50s was sitting on large panels. Footage filmed by a local broadcaster captured the rescue. It shows fire and military authorities emerging from the submerged garage and putting the two victims on a stretcher as residents cheered and clapped. Typhoon Hinamnor tore through South Korea's southern industrial hubs this week. It left at least 10 people dead, two missing, and thousands displaced. And coming up, the U.N. wants to stop the shelling at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Both Russian and Ukrainian forces have traded blame. Find out what a U.N. organization is proposing. And Ukrainian wineries are struggling to operate as the war interferes with their work, but they are determined to continue business as best they can. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. The U.S. Air Force says it successfully test-fired an unarmed Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missile. It was launched from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California on Wednesday morning. The mock warhead traveled about 4,200 miles to the Marshall Islands as planned. The test program is part of a regular effort to show the readiness and reliability of the U.S. nuclear force. The Air Force says tests like this have been conducted more than 300 times before, and the latest test is not in response to current world events. And Europe's biggest nuclear power station is located in Russian-controlled territory in Ukraine. The International Atomic Energy Agency on Tuesday called for fighting to be halted in a security zone around the plant. Here are the details. With ongoing shelling near Europe's biggest nuclear power plant sparking widespread concern of a pending disaster, the U.N. nuclear watchdog on Tuesday called for the fighting to stop and for a security zone to be established at the plant located in Russian-controlled territory along the front line of its war with Ukraine. We are playing with fire and something very, very catastrophic could take place. The Zaporizhia nuclear plant, seized by Russia shortly after its invasion of Ukraine, is controlled by Russian forces, but run by Ukrainian technicians. 
Russia and Ukraine each accuse the other of shelling. In Ukraine, Rafael Grossi, head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, spoke at the United Nations on Tuesday following a report by the IAEA that called the situation unsustainable. He and other IAEA inspectors braved shelling to cross the front line and reach the power station last week. Grossi said a security zone should be established immediately around the plant, something also urged by United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres. Inspectors said they had found Russian troops and equipment at the plant, including military vehicles parked in turbine halls. Moscow has denied accusations that it used the plant as a shield for its forces, but says it has troops guarding it. Could the war in Ukraine draw Russia closer to countries like Iran, China, and North Korea? The Pentagon says Russia is reaching out to North Korea to buy ammunition. Um, I'm not able to provide any more detail than that at this point in time, uh, but it does demonstrate and is indicative of the situation that Russia finds itself in in terms of its logistics and sustainment capabilities as it relates to Ukraine. The White House also said on Tuesday that Russia could be about to buy literally millions of artillery shells and rockets from North Korea. The State Department also confirmed that Russia is in the process of buying the weapons. Russia's ambassador to the United Nations dismissed the report, saying, I haven't heard it, and I think that's another fake being circulated around. White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby noted that this is a potential purchase. He said there were no indications that the purchase has been completed or that the weapons would be used inside Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin is planning to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping next week. Russian media reported that the meeting will take place on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan. The summit kicks off September 15th. And the owners of Ukraine's wineries are trying to survive the war. It has hit winemakers on several fronts, with consumption down 20% and exports shrinking. Here's that story. Six months after a rocket landed in his vineyard in southern Ukraine in the first weeks of Russia's invasion, Georgi Molchanov is now harvesting his grapes and wondering what to name this year's unforgettable vintage. We want to signify, uh, make signification of this wine. This, this is what special year, so it's also need to make some name of this to to show this uh, that was not uh, easy year for fall followers. Molkanov, like other craft winemakers and larger enterprises across Ukraine, says he's determined to keep producing wine despite adversity. An hour's drive to the southwest in a largely abandoned Black Sea resort, the much larger Kablevo winery had Russian paratroopers landing in its fields. The company began labeling some bottles of wine, we are from Ukraine, and sent a portion of sales to the army, says director Vitaly Rybashapko. We can't make any plans because there's too many factors that we can't influence. So we do what we can today and we try to help our country and our armed forces. The war has hit winemakers on several fronts. Ukraine banned the sale of alcohol during the first two months of the war. Exports, a key source of revenue for larger wineries, have shriveled due to the blockade of Ukraine's Black Sea ports. Consumption of wine has fallen 20% since before the war, the company says. Sparkling wine sales are down by half because of a lack of parties and reasons to celebrate. Despite that, winemaker Tatiana Matveva says she pours her love for her country into the wine she makes. In such circumstances, one has to look for positive moments and emotions that will bring happiness. The 
because a person has only one life to live. So one has to value every moment and even every insignificant event that brings positive emotions. This is the reason we make our wine, so its taste and fragrance can help people live on, reminding them that life is not over. The European Organization for Nuclear Research is planning to temporarily shut down some of its particle accelerators, possibly including the world's biggest particle accelerator amid an energy crisis in France. The organization is located near the France-Switzerland border. Its eight particle accelerators consume about 200 megawatts of electricity during peak operation. That's nearly a third of the electricity consumption in Geneva, the second most populated city in Switzerland. The organization is drafting a plan to shut down a few of its particle accelerators during periods of peak demand for the sake of grid stability and preventing blackouts. Shutting down the accelerators can lower the facility's energy consumption by up to 25 percent. If necessary, they are willing to idle the Large Hadron Collider as well. The Large Hadron Collider is the world's biggest particle accelerator. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, more than 1,000 exhibitors from around the world showcase the latest technologies at IFA Berlin. We'll bring you what visitors are seeing at Europe's largest consumer electronics fair. And skilled weavers in Spain are making use of old shopping bags and advertising billboards. Their new creations can help keep local residents cooler. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. Europe's largest consumer electronics fair opened its doors to visitors this weekend. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on some of the new products from innovators all over the world. IFA Berlin is hosting more than 1,000 exhibitors showcasing the latest technologies. This is Creative Technologies Flying Magic Cleaner. The drone features an air purifier and 15 minutes of battery life. We came up with this uh, flying drone uh, air purifier. So you make it fly around your house automatically and it's going to fly in all the corners and grab the particles very quickly, quicker than uh, any other uh, air purifier. IFA Berlin showcases technology that could become commonplace in years to come. Germany-based Beezer is showing off its cooler that promises to chill bottles or cans 10 times faster than a conventional freezer. So this is actually for anybody who wants spontaneous drinks, who wants cold drinks, uh, it's good for uh, vacation houses, it's good for any, um, uh, any um, apartment which you don't have too much space in your fridge. So sometimes you don't have enough space in your fridge to cool down so many beers. Sustainability is a top trend at IFA this year. UK-based Matter Industries is showing off a filter for washing machines that captures fuzz and loose threads. Their eventual aim is to recycle the captured fibers into new items or products. When we wash our clothes, all the fibers are coming off and washing into the waterways. But most of our clothes now, certainly 60% at least, are polyester, nylon, rayon, which is plastic. And so what we're putting in the environment is plastic. France-based Adoc is showing off something called a smart tactile hub. The product uses a projector and sensors to create an interactive screen on almost any surface. We could project any kind of PC and digital uh, image into a laboratory, for example, where no PCs uh, can enter today because of batteries or stuff like that. 
IFA Berlin opened to the public on September 2nd and ends September 6th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A village in Spain is covered with parasols weaved by its residents. They used recycled shopping bags and old advertising billboards. They hope their weaving can help the environment and also cool the village down. Here's NTD's Eddie Aitken with more. In a Spanish village about 90 miles west of Madrid, colorful shades cover its narrow streets. The parasols are made by a group of mostly elderly residents with recyclable materials, hoping to help the environment and attract tourists. It is an activity that we developed throughout winter, weaving light structures that later we hung from the streets as a temporary installation during the hotter months. Weavers use knitting needles to wind the plastic into thin strips which are then made into shades. This helps cool the village down during the day. One of the goals is to keep these kinds of handcrafting techniques alive, techniques that have been transmitted by word of mouth and that are getting lost. A weaver showed how to weave. She said the first thing is to cut a plastic sheet into a thread. She did a diagonal cut so she could get a long thread, then wrapped the thread up to make a ball. This is the thread with which we weave. This is called weaving. This 69-year-old retired teacher said weaving was not just for women in this village of only 483 inhabitants. I think a project for public art is very interesting for the town because of many factors. There is the social factor, environmental factor, the human part, tourism. So I want to take part in it, and that is by weaving. The parasols are made with plastic waste, mainly shopping bags, and also the remains of advertising billboards. At the hands of weavers, they are turned into images of birds, Ukrainian flags, a woman meeting a man, or simply a mix of different bright colors. Spain has suffered three unusually long heat waves this summer. It has stoked devastating wildfires and exacerbated one of the worst droughts in decades. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Sharply suited dignitaries gathered to inaugurate a footbridge in the Congolese capital. However, the structure collapsed beneath their feet to the barely concealed delight of onlookers. Just as an organizer cut the ribbon at the ceremony, the bridge buckled, both its handrails broke off, and the central section fell into a stream a couple of yards below. Spectators shouted in apparent glee as the officials struggled to get off the crumpled wreck. Nobody was reported to have been hurt in the incident. One of the last people to climb free was a man in military fatigues and dark glasses. He was clutching an unopened bottle of champagne. The footage was shared widely on social media. And coming up, the rush to build wind farms to combat climate change is threatening golden eagles as the birds collide with wind turbines. Stay tuned for more after this short break. One of the most spectacular predators of the western U.S., the golden eagle, is under threat, and the push for wind energy is only making things worse. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. Wyoming is a stronghold for golden eagles. The birds of prey soar with a seven-foot wingspan, but the state is also a favored location for wind farms. As wind turbines proliferate, scientists say deaths from collisions could drive down golden eagle numbers. Golden eagles, as they're flying, toward a turbine, they don't necessarily perceive this distance, this gap between the, uh, the turbine blades. And so as they're flying through, 
uh, and the turbine is spinning, it strikes the eagle. Rising temperatures are also a threat to golden eagle breeding ranges. Well, I think we're faced with a race against time, and that is with climate change being so acute and how serious it seems to be, um, as well as trying to obtain as many renewable energy projects as possible. A scientist dangled from a rope 30 feet above the ground with a canvas bag slung around his neck. He reached for a young eagle in a nest, slid a leather hood over its head, then wrestled it into the bag. Blood is drawn from a wing to test for lead exposure. Part of what we're doing as scientists is trying to understand where uh, the, the decline is coming from, whether it is a, uh, uh, a reduced reproduction, increased mortality, According to U.S. Geological Survey data, the number of wind turbines nationwide more than doubled over the past decade. But there is no easy solution. As far as potential solutions goes, um, you know, there probably really is no silver bullet, but there are several options that can be pursued. Um, one of which is really looking at how eagles use the landscape, uh, particularly before you build a wind farm. Federal officials have tried to curb turbine deaths while maintaining the growth of wind power as an alternative to fossil fuels. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. In sports news, two major items from basketball legend Michael Jordan are up for auction, and one of them is the most expensive Michael Jordan item to come to the market. This is really one of the most iconic Michael Jordan jerseys that a collector could have. Um, so this is the 1998 NBA Finals jersey from Game 1 of the Last Dance Finals. Uh, so when you think about Michael Jordan contests and kind of the heat of that moment, the 1998 NBA Finals going into Utah in what was ultimately actually still to this day the most viewed NBA Finals contest. Bidding opened on Tuesday and will go through September 15th on Sotheby's website. It's estimated to fetch $3 million to $5 million. The bid on Tuesday morning was $2.75 million. If it breaks $3.7 million, it will be the most expensive basketball jersey ever to sell at auction. Meanwhile, Bohams plans to auction a pair of tickets to Michael Jordan's NBA debut in 1984. They're expected to fetch $200,000 to $300,000. Jordan, age 21 at the time, played his first game as a member of the Chicago Bulls at Chicago Stadium on October 26, 1984. The Bonhams auction runs from September 19th to the 29th. Chicago's Shedd Aquarium has united a father sea lion and his son at the sea lion colony. The Shedd is now home to three generations of sea lions. The new arrivals are three-year-old Charger and his three-month-old son. The son is the youngest sea lion to ever live at the aquarium. As a youngster, Charger was raised by the largest and oldest sea lion in the Shedd's care. Charger and his son traveled to Chicago from the Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C. The three-month-old baby sea lion has already started to swim, vocalize, and engage with enrichment toys. He will be slowly introduced to other sea lions, learn to socialize with his caretakers, and participate in training and enrichment sessions. Ah, that light dusting of cinnamon on your cappuccino or favorite dessert. Some things just go together. What has made cinnamon a favorite spice over millennia? Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Did you know that there are two types of cinnamon, the genuine and the substitute? True cinnamon comes from Sri Lanka, 
India, Madagascar, Brazil, and the Caribbean. It's sometimes referred to as Ceylonese cinnamon. It's more expensive, sweeter, lighter, and suited to desserts. The other one, cassia, is often called Chinese cinnamon or Saigon cinnamon. It comes from Indonesia, China, Vietnam, Japan, and Korea. Cassia has a robust flavor more suited to savory dishes. Both types of cinnamon are very good sources of dietary fiber, iron, and calcium. Cinnamon has a trace mineral, manganese. It's an important enzyme activator in building healthy bones. Manganese aids other physiological processes, including carbohydrate and fat metabolism. Here's six reasons to eat more real cinnamon. Lowers blood sugar levels. Good for diabetics, using cinnamon slows the rise of blood sugar. Favorably alters the blood lipid profile. That's a measurement of levels of each type of fat in your blood. For diabetics, cinnamon will reduce the associated risk of cardiovascular disease supports healthy blood clotting. It helps to thin the blood and lowers cholesterol levels, fights bacteria and fungus. Ayurvedic medicine has long used cinnamon for this purpose. It supports the immune system against colds and the flu, boosts memory and protects the brain. Studies concluded that cinnamon enhances cognitive processing and memory. And finally, improves digestion. In traditional Chinese medicine, cinnamon treated flatulence, nausea, and diarrhea. The combination of fiber and calcium may reduce the risk of colon cancer and relieve constipation. If you have trouble digesting dairy products, try cinnamon. Of course, always read labels and try to buy organic cinnamon. In fact, make a habit of reading labels. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.